Would you bow your hearts with me? Our Father who is in heaven, we thank you for this morning that we have come to be reminded of the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We've sang many songs that glorified his coming, that glorified you for sending him. And we ask that now as we come to your word that you would, by your spirit, speak to our hearts. That this word that came in the flesh would speak to us this morning. We ask that you would make Christ glorious to every heart here this morning. I ask that you would grant me grace to take us through this amazing passage of scripture for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 1. Now in light of the celebration of the birth of Christ that is coming in just a few weeks, we wanted to start this series that will go on for the next three weeks entitled, The Word Became Flesh. Now this morning, uh, my job is to take us through the first part of that and the message of my sermon will be born to reveal. Now no doubt all of us, I would say most of us are familiar with the events surrounding the birth of Christ. Many who do not even go to church, who do not even read their Bibles, they can sketch out incarnation narrative. However, not all of us are familiar or understand completely the meaning of Christmas. Yes, we can describe the stories, we can recite them to our kids with ease, but the question that we want to ask over the next couple of weeks is the question, why? Why? We understand the concept, God became man. But why? What purpose? What did he come into in the world to do? I can say with certainty that none of us comprehend this fully. In fact, we can say with certainty from scripture that we will spend eternity learning about this. And yet, right now, scripture is not silent. Scripture gives us some answers already that we want to look at. So this morning, I'm going to argue first thing that Jesus Christ was born to reveal the invisible God. Next Sunday, Tim will take us to Hebrews chapter 10, and he will show us that Jesus was born to atone for sins. The following Sunday, Mike will take us to Galatians chapter 4, and he will show that Jesus was born to adopt us into God's family. Now, our goal this morning is simply look at John chapter 1, specifically verse 14 and a little bit of verse 18. Now, for us to get the context, I invite you to read with me first 18 verses. John writes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came, came a man from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, 
And those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Now this portion of scripture, this prologue that John pens before he goes into his account of the gospel is one of the most profound portions of scripture. Augustine said of this passage and of the Gospel of John that it is shallow enough for a child to paddle in and deep enough for an elephant to swim in. The language is simple and straightforward, but the concepts are deep and profound. When John began writing his Gospel, he started it unlike Matthew and Luke. When Matthew and Luke began their Gospel, they go back 2,000 years, or they go back to the events that took place in the city of Bethlehem. John is writing much later, and he takes us back not 2,000 years ago, but he takes us back to the very beginning. In this prologue, John paints for us the greatest drama that started not in the city of Bethlehem, but much, much earlier. Now, speaking of dramas, most of you are familiar with a TV show, Undercover Boss. If you've never seen it, it's a reality TV show where high executives, CEOs usually uh, come out of their lavish and beautiful offices, and they disguise themselves as regular employees, and they take low-level jobs in their own companies. They go in, they disguise themselves with facial hair, makeup, wigs, just to see how the company is doing and to see ways in which they can improve. Now, fictitious explanations are given as to the cameras that follow them. And so sometimes bosses blow their cover and the employees find out who they really are. Now, about a week later, after they have worked in those entry-level jobs in their own companies, the bosses return to their own offices and they invite the employees with whom they worked over the week and they reveal their true identity. Now, they reward sometimes those who did well and they reprimand others who didn't. Now, when you think about this undercover boss concept, when we read John chapter 1, we have the greatest undercover mission of all time. The God of the universe, who leaves the glories of heaven, he covers himself with human flesh and comes as a little baby into a dirty manger to serve the people. But unlike the TV show, God of the universe disguised himself not so that people wouldn't know who he is, 
But because if he would show up as he is, there wouldn't be anyone to serve. Because everyone would be immediately dead. Now you read the accounts of the gospel, you read the story, and once in a while while you see Jesus peeling back the curtain and showing to the people his true identity. And when that happens, everyone else usually finds themselves on the ground. You remember Mount of Transfiguration? When at least three disciples saw Jesus in glory, if you will, and they were like dead men. Remember in Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus just said two words, I am. Everyone was on the ground. See, this is true because finite man cannot stand in the presence of an infinite God. My point this morning from this text is very simple. Jesus put on human flesh to live among us and make invisible God visible. Jesus Christ put on human flesh to live among us and make invisible God visible. Now, before we actually look at verse 14 primarily and verse 18, we need to make a few observations from first 13 verses. Notice, as I already said, that John begins his gospel by going to the very beginning. Maybe when John sat down to write, he had his morning devotion in Genesis chapter 1, because Genesis chapter 1 corresponds perfectly to John chapter 1. In Genesis 1:1, Moses says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You see, this was the beginning of time. You know that there was time when there was no time. Time began in Genesis chapter 1. God exists outside of time. And he created time so that finite creatures like you and I, we can experience successions of moments. Genesis 1-1 is the beginning of everything, including time. Now, John takes us back to that very beginning in Genesis chapter 1. Now, notice when John begins his gospel, he opens explicitly by telling us of the deity of Christ. If you look at John chapter 1, notice that there are two persons here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, we know that there is one God. And here we are introduced to two persons. And there is a great mystery in Scripture that the God of the Bible is triune God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are distinct persons, but we have one God. Someone had said it well. Try to explain Trinity, and you will lose your mind. Try to deny Trinity, and you will lose your soul. You see, the reality is that God does not require us to understand everything in the Bible. But God does require us to believe everything that's in the Bible. So the test of whether something is true is not whether I understand it or whether I can explain it to somebody. The test is simple. Is it in the Bible? And if it is in the Bible, then it is absolutely true. Just this week, I was talking to a Muslim guy. And Muslims obviously don't believe in Trinity because they can't fit into their mind. How can be God and Jesus and both be God and they can? That's impossible. And ask him a simple question. I said, would you concede that the God of the universe can be something and do something that you do not understand? Is that possible? Now, if you can't concede that, then you think that you're smarter and brighter than God. 
But if you can't concede that, then what's the problem if you don't understand? So what that you don't understand it? Now, because you don't understand it, it's obvious you only have 3% of your brain that's working. And with that, you cannot comprehend God. And so because we don't understand it, and because we can't necessarily explain it, it does not mean that it's not true. Because in the beginning, John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and he specifically states that the Word was God. Now we know that this Word is a reference to Christ. Because in our verse, we will see in verse 14, it says, the Word became flesh. In verse 17, he specifically names him, and he says, grace and truth were revealed through Jesus Christ. Now why does John use the word? Why can't he just say in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God? I mean, that would be straightforward. That would be easy to understand. But we've got to remember that John is writing in the context in which he lived. Gnosticism was a prevailing ideology of the day. Gnosticism believed in the word. They believed in logos. And what they believed that logos was this pure thought and idea that transcends physical and material. There was this bad God who created this material world. And what you want to do is you want to get past this material, past this physical, and get into this transcendent. Now, Gnosticism offers you a way to do that. Why? Because they have special knowledge that will help you to get past that. Now John opens his gospel and he says, no, Logos is not just a thought. It's not just an idea. Logos is a person. He is a person with flesh and blood, and his name is Jesus. Now more specifically, if you look at verse 18, he tells us no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. He has exegeted him, literally. You see, the way to get to know someone is to communicate with them. There are different ways we communicate with one another, and the most prominent one is actually speaking. It's by words. Yes, there is nonverbal communication, but it is limited and often unreliable. Now, since God is invisible, as John says it here, that no one has seen God at any time. His spirit, he is invisible. In order for you to know God, God has to reveal himself to you. From the beginning, as we read in the book of Hebrews, God spoke in various ways to people so that they might know him. Now, when we come to the New Testament, John says God not only spoke through prophets, but, but God himself became the word, and the word came to explain God to us. That's why he says, in the beginning was the word. Now notice from our text that the word existed before the beginning. Because the verse says, in the beginning was the word, in perfect tense. The word was already when there was the beginning, which means that the word existed prior to the beginning of creation. When Genesis 1-1 happened, the word already existed. Now, there are people who claim to be Christians, and they walk around and come to your house, and they will tell you that Jesus is a created being, and that the Father created Jesus, and then Jesus created everything else. Now, let's take that heresy, and put it against verse 3. Because in verse 3, John says, look at verse 3. All things came into being through him. How many things? All things. All things. Now, in case you didn't get that, he puts it in the negative. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In other words, he says, every created being has its beginning 
in Christ. And nothing, there is no created being that does not have its beginning in Christ. Therefore, if that heresy is true, then Jesus must have created himself first and then created everything else, which is absolute nonsense. But here he says everything that is created has its beginning in Christ. Yes, the Father spoke the world into existence through the Word. And apart from Jesus, nothing came into being. Jesus was already there when the world was created. Jesus is explicitly called God, and the Word was God. Jesus had life in himself, and he's the one who gives life to all things. Verse 4 says, in him was life, and the life was the light of man. Jesus is the creator who spoke the universe into existence, and then now he's the one who put on human flesh. Now, having made these observations, we can now come to verse 14. Now, if you look at verse 14, in this one sentence here, you have three verbs. You have three verbs that I want to draw your attention to. It says the word became, then dwelt, and the third word is saw. Became, dwelt, and saw. Now, to unpack this sentence here, I want to give you three words that correspond to these three verbs, and we'll take them one at a time. The first word is incarnation. Incarnation. Christ became a man. The second word is assimilation. Christ assimilates or he integrates into human society and he dwells among men. And then the third word is the word revelation. Because Christ reveals for the visible world the invisible glory of God. Let's take them one at a time. Let's begin with incarnation. John says in verse 14, and, and the word became flesh. Now this word became is very important in these first 18 verses. It is used at least, 18 at least 10 times in different ways in these 18 verses. As we already saw that the word existed prior to him becoming the word of God. And now when we come to prior to him becoming man in verse 14. So now John fast forwards from that time from the beginning in Genesis chapter 1. And he fast forwards to Bethlehem when Jesus appeared to Mary where the angel appeared to Mary. And he says behold you will conceive in your womb and you will bear a son and you shall name him Jesus. Then John fast forwards nine months later when Mary gives birth to the son. This was the day of which Paul said in Galatians chapter 4 verse 4. He says, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son born of a woman. Now there wasn't anything magical about the birth of Christ. Besides the fact that he did not have a human father. Everything else was normal. Mary carried Jesus just like our mothers carried us. She gave birth to Jesus just like any woman gives birth to Jesus today. Uh, gives birth today is just that the conditions in which she gave birth were they were a whole lot worse than they are today. But there is one distinction between our birth and the birth of Jesus. Notice the text says here, and the word became flesh. Now every child that is born has his or her beginning at the moment of conception. When God creates a new being which did not exist prior to that. Now Jesus, as we saw in 1.1, he existed prior to that. And that's why he uses this word, and the word became flesh. 
Speaking of his incarnation, Jesus, from the perspective of eternity, in Hebrews chapter 10, he quotes the psalm, and he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. The Father prepared body for Jesus who already existed. And so when Jesus comes into the world, he comes into the body which was prepared for him. He existed prior to his incarnation. So on that night when Jesus becomes man, the eternal enter time. The creator enters creation. Infinite becomes finite. Invisible becomes visible. God becomes man. Now John says, and the word became flesh. Now flesh is used in different ways in the Bible. For example, there is a negative way in which it is used. In Romans chapter 8, verse 13, for example, it says, For if you're living according to the flesh, your carnal nature, you must die. That's obviously not the sense in which John uses it here. But oftentimes the word flesh simply means your body, your physical body. Ephesians 5.29, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church. Philippians 1.22, but if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. We're talking about physical human body. God does not have a body. God does not have a physical body. So when Jesus enters the world, he puts on human body. You know, the story is told of a little girl who cries out from her room, In the evening when she's going to sleep and she says, Mommy, I'm afraid to be in the dark all by myself. She says, Honey, don't worry. Jesus is with you. She's like, Yeah, but I want somebody with skin on. You see, what happens here in incarnation is God himself puts on human skin. God himself comes in human flesh. He didn't just appear human. He was human. He got sick. He was weak. He needed to eat, he needed to sleep, he was hungry, and ultimately we know that he was a man because he died on the cross. The author of Hebrews puts it this way, since children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. Now let me say what this phrase does not mean. When John says the word became flesh, he does not say that Jesus ceased to be God in that moment. Again, this is something that we cannot fully comprehend. How can you be 100% man and be 100% God at the same time? How can you be 200% of something? But the question is not whether I can explain that is, but whether Scripture teaches it. And yes, Scripture does teach that Jesus was 100% God and Jesus was fully man. Just consider for a moment what it was like for infinite God to become a creator, uh, to become a creature, to become man, to become a baby. I mean, when you're God... You're self-existent. You're self-sufficient. Everyone worships you. You are in control of absolutely everything. And then Jesus puts on human flesh. We have a lot of babies around here. And they're not self-sufficient. They're not self-existent. They can't do anything on their own. They need someone to feed them, somebody to put them to bed, somebody to clean them, somebody, everything they need. They need help from outside. They're not self-sufficient. And then God, who spoke the universe into existence, becomes a little baby. A little baby who needed his mommy for everything. If you ever think about 
hey, you know what? He was a high, I had a high position, now I don't have a high position. That, that's what we're talking about. That's a high position of being God, being worshipped, and at the same time to become a little baby. He was human. He cried like a little baby, and yet at the same time, he was the one who gave life to his mother. He was fully human, and at the same time, he was fully divine. And just to think that Jesus did this voluntarily, no one made him do it. He voluntarily did this. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, Paul says, Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not hold on to his high position. But what did he do? He emptied himself. What does that mean? By taking a form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of man. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, and that's an understatement, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Wayne Grudem, in his systematic theology, when he closes the chapter on the person of Christ, he closes with these words, He says, incarnation is by far the most amazing miracle of the entire Bible. Far more amazing than the resurrection and more amazing even than the creation of the universe. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal son of God could become man and join himself to human nature forever. So that the infinite God become one person with finite man will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all the universe. God became man. Now we looked at the first word, incarnation. Let's look at the second word, assimilation. John continues and he says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus didn't just show up on Friday morning, went to the cross and died. No, Jesus lived for 33 and a half years. The word dwelt, literally means to live in a tent. You can read it this way. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Now you remember the reference to the Old Testament? You remember that in the Old Testament, God commanded Moses to pitch a tent where he would meet with people. God dwelt in a tent in the Old Testament. And if you wanted to see God, you would go to the tabernacle. Once a year, the priest would enter the Holy of Holies. That was the place where God dwelt, and he would offer that sacrifice once a year. Now, when the Word became flesh, he dwelt among us, John says. He lived, he tabernacled among us. He tented among us for 33 years. Now, Jesus was a normal child. He grew up just like any child would. He developed in every way. Luke chapter 2, verse 52 says, Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with men. He had to develop mentally, physically, spiritually, socially. And he walked for 33 years perfectly obeying the will of his Father and accumulating the righteousness which he then imputes to those who believe in him. Now, if the emphasis of the first statement is that deity became humanity, The emphasis of the second statement is that deity dwelt with humanity. Now in the Holy of Holies, 
Only one man had access once a year. And he had to bring blood, and he had to come exactly as God prescribed, or he would die. Or he would die. You see, in the incarnation, when Jesus put on human flesh, he lived among his people. God covered himself with human flesh so that he could be among men and they would live. Again, reference to the Old Testament. Think back to the book of Exodus. Think back to the time where Moses is calling to God and says, God, uh, show me your glory. Now God says, you cannot see my face. There's, there's one reason for that. Why? Because for no man can see me and live. You cannot see God and survive. But when Jesus comes, he puts on human flesh and he lives among men. When John says he lived among us, he most likely refers to himself and to the other apostles among whom he lived for at least three and a half years when he was discipling them. But John was so amazed by this. By the fact that God dwelt with him, that, for example, in 1 John, he writes this. He says, what was from the beginning? What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And life was manifested, and we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. The word became flesh. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Listen, we saw Him. We heard Him. We touched Him. Today, many people are impressed with celebrities, you know, or athletes, or maybe even preachers. And you go, you see someone, and you know, you take a picture, you post it on Instagram, and you said, oh, I saw this guy. And John be like, you saw who? I saw God. I lived with God. I ate with God. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner for three and a half years. We saw him. We touched him. You know, when kids ask, what is God like? If you read John, the answer is, he's just like Jesus. Just like Jesus. Everything that you see in Jesus, this is what God is like. God himself walked among men. God himself lived with them. He did things, and we'll see that. He revealed himself by his actions and by his words. He was demonstrating to the visible world the invisible God. And this is where we come to our third word and where we want to camp a little bit. And this is the word revelation. Now, the first two verbs that we see here, they refer to Christ. Christ became man. And then Christ dwelt among men. Now this third word, when John says we saw, it relates to John and the fellow disciples. And most of us go camping at least once a year, right? Now what happens when you go inside the tent and you turn on a flashlight? You can see the light from the outside of the tent. Now when Christ put on human flesh, it was kind of like that. Once in a while, Jesus pulled back the covers and the light would begin to shine. Through his words, through his actions, Jesus demonstrated his true identity that he was not just like any other man. You see, his human flesh was a temporary tent which housed God himself. When John says, we saw his glory, again, he most likely is referring to the 12 who's been with him throughout his ministry. Now, when people looked at Jesus... 
When he walked around for 33 years, when he grew up in his family, when he grew up in his own town, most of the people weren't impressed with Jesus. In fact, there, was, there wasn't really anything impressive about him because he was just like every other man. For example, his hometown, when he began to preach there in Mark chapter 6, people who grew up with him, people who went to church with him for 30 years, they said, isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, his brother James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Isaiah, 700 years prior to that, prophesied that Jesus, he says, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we, that we should be attracted to him. You see, in his human flesh, Jesus wasn't impressive. He was just like an average Jacob. Many of those who saw him with their physical eyeballs, they did not recognize him for who he was. But there were few. There were few who recognized who Jesus is. And John was one of them. And John says, we saw. We saw. We were eyewitnesses. We beheld. We observed. We looked upon him. And notice he says here what we saw. We saw his glory. Glory. John Piper defines glory this way. He says, glory is a public display of the infinite beauty and the worth of God. He builds that on Isaiah chapter 6. You remember when Isaiah walked into the temple and he saw Jesus sitting on the throne. And he saw angels who were singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And what was the response? The whole earth is full of his glory. Whenever God puts himself on display, that's glorious. God's holiness and God's worth on display is glorious. In creation, for example, Psalm 19.1 says, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. You look at heavens, you look at creation, and you see how glorious God is. And Jesus was the final demonstration that God has for humanity to demonstrate how glorious he is. Now John writes this gospel probably 60 years after Jesus ascended to heaven. By this time he is an old man. Now for the most part of three and a half years that John walked with Jesus, he was just like everybody else. He was not necessarily impressed with Jesus. He was just like all the other people around him. Except for the few times, like I said. You remember that time when Jesus took him on the mountain and he was transfigured before them. John, Peter, and James were there. And John was the one who's writing this. And remember that time when it says Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and brought them up on the high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his, arm, his garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no laundry on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. Peter James and John, they saw the glory of Jesus. And you remember Peter started saying some kind of nonsense. Let's build some tents around here. That's what happens when you see God. They were like dead men on the ground. John says, I saw his glory. The miracles that Jesus performed, they also demonstrated the glory of God. And in John chapter 2 verse 11 says, The beginning of his signs Jesus did in Canaan of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Jesus demonstrated God by his words and by his actions. 
And when he spoke and when he did things, God was displayed as glorious. Now, what kind of glory did John see? He says it was glory as of the only begotten from the Father. This phrase, only begotten, has spawned many heresies regarding the persons of Christ. This word appeared, appears nine times in the New Testament. Luke uses it three times. In Luke chapter 7, verse 12, he refers to widow's son whom Jesus raised from the dead. In chapter 8, verse 42, he uses the same word and when he refers to Jairus' daughter. And in Luke chapter 9, verse 38, he refers to a demon-possessed boy, you remember, whom the father brought to Jesus. Now John uses it five times, this term. Every single time, it is in reference to Jesus. Four times it is used in the Gospel of John, and once it is used in 1 John 4, 19. Ninth time, it is used in the book of Hebrews, when the same word is used to refer to Isaac. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. Now, only begotten has nothing to do with your order of birth. If you just look at this reference here, speaking of Isaac, Isaac was not the only son of Abraham, right? He had Ishmael and he had other children. Isaac was not even firstborn of Abraham. Ishmael was born before Isaac. And yet, the author of Hebrews says here that Isaac was his only begotten son. He was the unique son. He was the son of the promise. And so when you have a reference here that Jesus was the only begotten son, he is the unique son. He is the one who is the son by nature. Now, we are children of God, and sure, we are adopted into the family of God. But Jesus possesses full nature of God. That's why the passage we just read in the book of Hebrews, when the book of Hebrews says, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Whatever God is, that's what Jesus is. Both of them ontologically are the same. They have the same nature. They have the same being. Now John further defines what glory he saw. And he says, this glory was full of grace and truth. You look at Christ. You look at what he said and you look at what he did. And everything that he said and did was permeated by grace. Now when John says it was full of grace and true, he didn't just pull those two attributes out of the bag. Didn't just say, well, I wonder where I can put it here. I can put a lot of things here. No, it was very specific. He said it was full of grace and truth. He again says in verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were revealed through Christ. Now, I already alluded to the Old Testament that John says that in the Old Testament, God gave the tabernacle, and the tabernacle, he revealed himself. In that passage in Exodus 33, when Moses says, can we see your glory? You remember, God says, you cannot see me. And then what happens? God puts him in a cleft of the rock, and he says, I will pass by. And the Lord passed by, and the Lord declared his name. The Lord declared his name, Exodus 34, 6, famous passage that all of us know. And then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Now what John alludes to here, he takes these two 
attributes, loving kindness and truth, and he translates them and he says he was full of grace and truth. When God demonstrated himself to Moses, he revealed his name. This is my name. This is who I am. Jesus now says, I have come from the Father, and you know who I am? The same name that God declared for himself in Exodus 34, 6 is the same name that I have. Grace and truth were revealed in Christ. That's why Jesus can walk around and say things like, hey, I have come in the name of my Father. All that my Father is, is all that I am. And all that I am declaring you is all that the Father is. No wonder John says that he has come in order to explain God to us. It was full of grace and it was full of truth. The same Jesus in John chapter 6 and 14 verse 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He was full of grace and at the same time he was full of truth. Now it's amazing to see how these two attributes are directly connected to salvation. There is no salvation apart from grace. Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourself, it is the gift of God. You cannot be saved on your own. God has to give you grace. Grace, he has to show you his loving kindness, which is his covenant love for his people. Apart from grace, you can't be saved. And apart from truth, you can't be saved. Because Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 32, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You don't have grace, you don't have truth, you do not know God, and you do not have salvation. Jesus says, I have come and I, to demonstrate grace and to demonstrate truth for you. You see, in this text, John is arguing that the invisible God has come in human flesh so that you and I could know and experience what God is truly like. You're asking the question what God is like? He is just like Jesus. Remember when Jesus was in the upper room and he was having a conversation with Philip and Philip says, you know, show us the Father and that is enough for us. And what did Jesus say? Listen, I've been with you for so long and you're asking me show us the Father? He says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. That's why in John chapter 10, he says, I and the Father are one. Whatever God is like, he is just like Jesus. So this whole nonsense about, you know, the God of the Old Testament was, you know, this mean God who just punished sin and who was always angry. And the New Testament God is this loving God who will cover everything and accept you. No. The God of the Old Testament is revealed in the person of Christ. Christ has come to demonstrate for us the God who was there from the very beginning. The God who was there in Genesis chapter 1. God who was there in Exodus 3.14. And God who was born in Bethlehem. Jesus Christ was the word of God that became flesh. So as we close our time, let me ask you a question. Do you know God? Not do you know of God, do you know God? Now this text here tells us that Jesus became man so that you would know who God is. So that you would know what God is like. So do you know God? You see, apart from Jesus, you cannot know God. You might confess God, but deny Christ. And if you deny Christ, you do not know God. 
Jesus makes that explicit in Matthew chapter 11, verse 27. He says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. Listen to this. And no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Unless Jesus reveals to you the Father, you will never know him. On the other hand, if you know Jesus, you know the Father. If you understand the revelation concerning Christ in the New Testament, you know him. Now for us believers, obviously you know God, because if you don't know God, you're not a believer. But if you are a believer, the question for you is, how well do you know God? And the answer, you know God as much as you know Jesus. Because Jesus has come to reveal the Father. And as your knowledge and love for Christ grows, your understanding of who God is grows as well. You see, Jesus became man so that he can identify with us. And this knowledge is not just this abstract thing that, yeah, I know God, and you know, when I get to heaven, I'm going to be with God. No, Jesus put on human flesh so that he can relate to you where you are right now. In all your troubles, in all your pains, in your joys, Jesus is right there with you. He can identify with you because he is a man. Because he put on human flesh so that he can identify with us and then later die for us. So do you know God? And then how well do you know him? See, our goal in life is to get to know Christ more and more. And the more we know Christ, our eternity is secure because we know him. And the situations that we go through, we are able to go through because the same Jesus who lived among the disciples for three and a half years, he is there with you and I. He can sustain you through your pain. He can be with you in your joys. Why? Because the word became flesh. Father, we thank you that you have loved us so much that you have sent your son for us. We thank you that our knowledge of you today can continually grow because we have the person of Christ. He's revealed on the pages of scripture. He walks with us and he teaches us. We thank you that you have come into this world to make invisible God visible. Praise in Christ's name. Amen.